and welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marquez. John, what is going on, my man? Oh, you know what's going on, Stephen. We are giving the people what they want. I'm really, really excited to announce that we have begun the process of the Enlightenment Project, curation of what we calling the go-to modern canon for materials and resources on distance running, education, and training. And we start this in the clubhouse. So if you're a clubhouse member, get on board. If you're not, become a running scholar member so you can get in the clubhouse and contribute to the identification, discussion, and decision on what resources and materials to include in this. What is the Alignment Project? Essentially, it's this. Steve and I, when we were young, like so many coaches, had a haphazard drunkard's walk of education. Like, oh, there's this book here. There's an article here. There's this internet forum here. It was, there's just so much material out there, but there's some stuff we came across later in our coaching journey that we wish we had been exposed to early on, but because there was no kind of like canon or syllabus to what have you, couldn't figure it out. So we decided to leverage the brain trust that is these amazing, you know, scholars that we have in this community of 300 plus strong and ask them, what do we think in a kind of sequential, progressional way, a brand new coach to, through an experience, an advanced coach should be exposed or seek out different materials. So should they read Jack Daniels, you know, running formula first or Joe V Hill's run to the top um, or road to the top, or should they try to go back and find like Lydiard's original, like, you know, run to the top. Like it's a very robust discussion we're having right now. And I'm really excited just to get all these insights from all these amazing, amazing coaches. So we can hopefully curate and create this canon to help every coach, whether you're a scholar or just a coach in general who's not a scholar in your developmental and self-education journey. You know, I can't say enough about this because I logged on to our scholar clubhouse the other day and I'm just like, holy crap, it's popping in here. <laughs> it is like, popping, yes. What's going on? <laughs> like, this is nuts. And I've just spent, you know, a good hour just going through, reading what other people are talking about in this Enlightenment project, reading also some of the, the threads that John had created and then the discussion that took off on deep training ideas on interval training and lactate accumulation and lactate dynamics and all this stuff. And it's just popping, man. And it's not just John... Or I putting it out there, we're getting this great feedback from others. And, you know, honestly, I, as I was reading through, I was like, oh, I haven't read that book in a long time. I need to return to that. You know, I'll give you the example. Uh, Ron Dawes, The Self-Made Olympian. A very hard to find book, but one that, you know, was mentioned in this project is as kind of a canon piece. And there's a reason for yeah, it. I mean, it's it's Lydia it applied. It really incredibly is incredibly insightful. Yeah, he got it. Yeah. Like, and he made himself into a, a an Olympian using Lydia's method. I think he met Lydia once or twice, and he's like, "Okay, I'm going to apply this." And he's just some nobody Minnesota distance runner who became a mar an Olympian Olympian in the marathon in 1968. Yeah, it's something else. So. You know, get on board. We're trying to up our, our coaching game. Not only as a running scholar do you get access to the clubhouse, this enlightenment project, you get courses, you get everything you need to become uh, the best coach that you can be. And we are here supporting you, trying to figure out and sort through the crazy mess of information and history, science, psychology, all that stuff around training and help you become a better coach. So and you know what's cool get too on board. about oh you know what's cool sorry to interrupt you Steve is like yesterday you know I had a member Mark reach out to me and said hey love to chat a little bit if you can about kind of Igloy and Bowerman style um, 
intervals and training and their methodology. And I said, yeah, sure. And Mark lives in the UK. I live here on the West Coast and in, in you know the Pacific Northwest. And we just got on the clubhouse and had a conversation, a phone call through the clubhouse. No external apps, no exchanging text messages or emails. Just went and just talked for an hour to another member halfway around the world and had a really robust and insightful conversation. And Mark's a really smart individual coaching people, you know, of all levels and abilities in triathlon and running and all this stuff. And I walked away from that conversation just like, wow, I learned a lot. And this is what we we constantly preach is like you have access to this amazing group of people right at your fingertips. And again, it's through, you know, privacy is maintained. You don't have to give out anything sensitive over the Internet. You can can just interact right there with a real person. It's amazing. So sign up, become a member, take advantage of this because it only gets better. Exactly. Get on board. All right. So let's dive into today's topic, which I think, again, is going to be interesting and dare I say, maybe a little bit controversial. Uh Oh, what are we doing? Which is the topic is how much of your training should not be running. And John, to set the stage, I'm going to hand it over to you because you read this great insight that combines modern science with also history which is what we love to do over here (laughs) as uh you know part of the running scholar program it's kind of our our central thesis is combining science history practice and this was such a wonderful example and i think this will set the stage perfectly yeah so the the concept for this podcast came from this essentially quote um, or summation of Percy Sarity and his ideas about training. And it comes from a research article called Interval Training for Performance, a Scientific and Empirical Practice, uh, Volume 1, Aerobic Interval Training and Performance by the uh, French researcher Bellet. And in that, um, you know, they say... They talk about Saturday's trainings in the 1970s, 60s, and the cornerstone is a key factor in performance is strength and power development, which becomes more and more important in improving performance over long distances by increasing running economy, which is decreasing the cost of the activity. So this was uh, emphasized by trainers like Saturday, the article goes on to say, um, who asked runners to perform intervals up sand dunes as well as undertake extensive weight training sessions. He recommended that all distance runners spend at least one third of their training time in non-running activities, in particular weight training, which can be organized as circuit training. He emphasized that there are two really important aspects of run training, run at competitive speeds, but not the full distance, and train at high velocities continuously for the full distance. However, almost everything was always included in his program, right? And then we have that research that demonstrated, that did just this, where they took 5K runners and they decreased their run volume by a third and replaced it with weight training, plyometrics, um, bounding, you name it. And their time for 5K significantly decreased. They got a lot faster. So it's a really interesting because we have both the, the kind of anecdotal or theoretical concept of this that was applied to a very small sample set in Port C. But then we have the scientific study um, from Pavlonian et al. that demonstrate it actually works. I love when things match up. Okay. Yeah. It's great. So, <laughs> but how many people are willing right now to delete one third of the run training? And invest in non-running activities. That's so, the question. Yeah. So here's all right. So let's 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 break this apart. Um, Sarity says one third of running time to non-running aspects. Let's maybe define because I think a lot of times we can think one third. We and again, this is a rule of thumb. Sarity's suggesting it's a heuristic. But, yeah, it's not yeah. a law. Yes, because it depends on how much it you know, training is, but anyways, 
let's get define what non-running aspects are. Because I think often people think, oh, that means I have to spend a lot of time like in the gym with the barbell lifting weights, which is one as which could be one aspect of it. But you know, Sarity, the study, others, like our good friend Dan John, strength coach, would argue that Canova as well, like strength training could be done, or this non-running aspects could be done in terms of circuit training, right? Could be done in circuit training, including some sort of running, or Lydiard style bounding uphills, which someone might be like, whoa, 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 that's running. And I would challenge you to go watch. There's some wonderful YouTube videos by um, the the guys who do the uh, Lydiard project. It's escaping my name right now, but of demonstrations of bounding. Oh, Lydiard yeah. style bounding uphills. And it is it's it's not running you're no 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 you're you're bounding like in an exaggerated way it is a strength and power training aspect um so there's a lot of there's a lot of different aspects to this that are that go beyond just getting into the the weight room and throwing around uh some barbells i think yeah this is the problem to me at least, is we tend to think on the extremes because the extremes are very easy to um, dissect, interpret, and also compare and contrast. What we're talking about is something in the middle. And when you get towards the middle of the extremes, it gets kind of fuzzy, right? It gets kind of hazy. So, you know, one example of this could be the conversation in strength training, right? Where it's like, the really tall athlete who has long limbs actually does more work because they have to move the weight through a greater range of motion than the really, really short athlete with really short, you know, um, stocky limbs, right? Because they don't have to move the weight through as great a range of motion. So the absolute strength looks like the shorter athlete is absolutely stronger. And they are. They're lifting more absolute mass or weight. However, the relative strength might be that the taller runner or, or taller athlete is actually relatively stronger because even though they're lifting less weight, they're doing more work, right? Because work is uh, dependent also on distance through a greater range of motion. So this dialogue isn't just kind of something that happens in the running world. It's also in the strength training world. I'm talking to our good friend Alan Bishop about this as well, who trains very tall individuals. In the, in the weight room through the University of Houston basketball team. And then contrasting it sometimes when he helps out training smaller individuals like the women's soccer team at U of H, right? So we have to be sensitive that we can't think in absolute terms and we have to basically kind of um, reposition our thought in more relative terms. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why if you look at the great coaches who have integrated stuff in running, they've done it in and taken their own unique spin on, on it, right? It's why often, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, there was, um, there was video of some of the best Kenyan runners, like uh, pulling tires, right? Yeah, yeah, that was great. Uh, I love that, yes. <laughs> and everyone's like, what are they doing? Why are they pulling tires? And it's like, well... This is one of the in aspects. the mud in the Kenyan yeah. clay mud, by the way. Too. In the Kenyan clay mud, this is one of the aspects to develop. You know, various times of types of specific strength or strength endurance. And yes, it involves running, but it involves like I would call this a non-running aspect because it is, uh, you know, it is not just going for a run. It's not doing intervals. There's this other aspect to it, right? And I think that's where. You know, people get scared off of like, oh, you know, you're saying spend a lot of time doing outside of running stuff, but think of it in terms of these other modalities that you can add to develop these particular strength, strength endurance, power, elasticity, speed, 
all of these things that contribute back to your running prowess. And I would add, you know, something else that thought of as I reflect on my days training with Alan Webb and Scott Roscoe is things like hurdle mobility too, right? I mean, we would go through all sorts of hurdle mobility followed by like what I would call more dynamic hurdle mobility followed by plyos afterwards. And if you add that stuff up, yeah, we went on a, you know, eight, nine mile run that took an hour, but then we were at the track for like an hour and a half afterwards doing this other stuff, you know? So you, you add that stuff in, in Rasco's training and, and gosh, I'm I'm sure he gets higher than one third of in terms of total time spent doing this stuff, higher than one third of training time doing non-running aspects. For sure, for sure. A couple of things here. One, let's just unpack that progression. So you do hurdle mobility first, and then plyos, and then something that's more um, speed and power oriented, right? So why why would we do that? Well, we only can express strength to the degree that we are mobile and stable. So mobility is limited and and or stability is limited. Your strength expression is also limited. This isn't hard, you know, to think about. It. Think about, you know, pulling something off the ground with just your weak foot on the ground in a unilat or like unileg stance, right? Versus pulling something off the ground with both feet on the ground. The one the more stable structure is going to make it easier to pull the thing off the ground. So it's really important that we understand mobility and stability are precursors to strength and power expression. The other things that that I was thinking about, Steve, as you were talking was, I remember when I first was really exposed to this was way back when, it may have been like, I want to say like 2008, 2007, like early days of flow track, early days of Ryan Fenton going out there in the field with people. And he uh, had a session, I think it was in Colorado Springs, of Shalane Flanagan when Shalane was coached by John Cook. And the session was hurdle mobility, um, some sprints, uh, some uh, med ball tosses and slams. Go out and do, all right, two, three-mile tempo run. Come back and do the, the circuit again. Go back out and do another two, three-mile tempo run. Come back and do the circuit again. And my mind was just like blown, right? And that's what Cook understood. And I think a lot of people like Seb Coe as well um, and um, Peter Coe, they understood this integration of kind of the circuit power speed development and translating it to the actual sport specific skill of running. And this isn't by any means outside of the running community, a novel concept. If you look at basketball players, football players, whether European or American football players, they do spend a lot of time in strength and power or strength training or non-sport specific activity invested in that to get better at the, their sport specific skill and activity, right? So we wouldn't bat an eye at like saying, oh yeah, football player spends a third of their training time in the weight room. Well, yeah, of course, makes sense. But we as distance riders, we tend to I sometimes think forget what we're training the various metabolic systems from a physiological perspective to do is to endure and fuel our ability to express strength and power for the duration of our race. Because that's why you slow down, right? If you can't put that force into the ground, you're slowing down. And so we need to be able to put a certain amount of force into the ground and fuel the force to keep the force steady and consistent or at a, a high level. But if you don't have that force to begin with, even if you have all the endurance in the world, it's going to be really tough to magically create that force out of nowhere, even if you're quote unquote fresh at the end. And this is that classic argument, right? Where it's like, again, extremists. Is it better to be strong, but a little bit more tired at the end or better be a little less weak or a little less strong and not tired at the end of the race? And how do you quantify and qualify that? Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting is throughout history of coaches, you see this integration of, we'll just call it this non-running stuff. 
um, in such a variety of methods depending on what they have available. And we're, they're all trying to do the same thing, which is like develop that strength, like strength endurance, that resistance to fatigue so that they can access, as we talked about a couple episodes ago, their muscle fibers that are harder to recruit, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Sarity at the beginning, who we talked about, had his athletes lift weights when no distance when when baseball players didn't even lift weights when football, when football athletes players, didn't, oh yeah yeah didn't baseball didn't players, no yeah like Sarity was having them but then he was also and you can see these wonderful videos on youtube like having them sprint up sand dunes you know and which, he was right there next to him at like 67 years old yeah which exactly which if you think of what you talked about earlier, like stability and creating that, like you want to learn how to put force into the ground and create some stability while running up a sand dune, your body's going to have to figure that, that out, you know, because that sand dune is going to provide a heck of a feedback to try and dislodge um, your, your kind of like balance and mobility there. And didn't like Herb Elliott have this, you know, Sarity set up like it's essentially the circuit, the sand dune uphill, downhill circuit. And one of the key markers for Elliot to get confidence to be able to, you know, press the 1500 in the Olympic final in Rome when he won was his, like he was running those circuits like in record time for those circuits, right? And when we think about that, it's like, yeah, this makes total sense. I mean, it was very arbitrary, this circuit uphill, downhill. But if we think about it, go, oh, what does that sound a lot like? Lydiard's hill phase, where you're running uphill, flat, turn around, run fast, downhill, flat, so on and so forth. So, you know, Lydiard famously says, oh, my runners don't lift weights, but they did the hill phase. They did bounding, which is a full body plyometric activity. <laughs> I mean, it is just as good as weights, honestly. It's, it is tough. So, yeah, I think they didn't need to do that because they filled the gap in other areas. Exactly. It's where, where do you fill that gap? You know, um, Lydiard's famous quote for bounding to maybe give people a visual is he would say, like a deer going over a fence, right? So this, this isn't just like, you know, um, hey, you know, try and bound like we think of. This is like deer Project going over your effect. body off the ground right. as high as possible <laughs> right it, exactly and um you know what also is interesting is Lydiard had variations on these hills from steep hill running to hill bounding to more of like a very slow springing type hill mm, exercise. oh yeah mm -hmm. yeah the slow and spring. you know and and i think this is the key here is that Lydiard used his hills and then various what we call essentially plyometric activities of various regard to uh to train this capacity you know and if that works for you great if you need to pull some tires great if you need to get in the weight room great what i think what i think is required is you can't like let me step back even the guy known as the 100-mile-a-week guy, the aerobic foundation, the let's-not-lift-weights guy is spending, has an entire period of training where in the old days, the original schedules, it's five days a week of this, of, of springing, bounding, sprinting, up and down like hills, in order to develop this strength, power, elasticity, capacity, so that his athletes could then transition to running fast on the track. Like, there is a reason that Lydiard stuck that hill phase in the position that he did, right? Because it was, Lydiard was very deliberate on his kind of strict linear periodization model where he said, first, I need to build the aerobic capacity along with the capacity to run for a very long time and be resistant. Then I need to build the resistance plus strength, power, speed 
to be able to transition and utilize that on the track when we start our intense interval training. Like it's very deliberate. It is. I think if we step back to me and say, look at this original schedules, right? What he was talking about. And he's saying, go out and run and train for an hour to two hours every day at a, at your a high, high capacity or high, high ability. Right. And then these bounding hill sessions take how long? About an hour to two hours every day. And then the interval sessions take about an hour to two hours every day. So his concern was we need to do this higher intensity work later on. And he was like, totally like, I don't want to get fatigued. I don't want them to, you know, be sore and beat up. And he understood empirically that the aerobic system developed at a high level will help create clearance and that tonic, so to speak, to flush out all those catabolic metabolites that will be created from this high intensity work. So to preface that, he's like, very simple. We're just going to do this type of stuff for an hour to two hours a day. And then we're going to transition to this type of stuff for an hour to two hours a day. And then we're going to transition to this type of stuff for an hour, two hours a day. And the problem is, we get so wrapped up in this quantification of, oh, we, how much did you run? How much did you run? Like Ron Dawes actually did the math for him when he strictly did the strict um, hill phase. And he tempered it for him to instead of five days a week straight, every other day. So he'd do the hill, fa- uh, hill workout every other day for three days a week. But it was about 14 to 16 miles of distance covered going up and down the hill and mm. bounding and yada, yada, yada. But he's like, yeah, you're out there for 90 minutes or two hours. So I think if we step back and we don't talk about miles, but we talk about time of intensity, time of training, and we see that Lydia was just laying this foundation so he could translate that over so they could do it for however long he felt they needed to be able to do it to get the benefit, to get the stimulus in. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's interesting. It really does when you start to conceptualize it like that. Um, okay, so we've got we've got hill bounding. We've got using hills. We've got plyometrics. We've got circuits, hurdle mobility, other sorts of. Let me let me add in one other thing that I think is important and often misunderstood here on this non-running activity. The thing that we call running form drills are not running form drills. They apply to this non-running aspect because they are specific strength, you know, drills, essentially. If you look at, you know, our good friend Vern Gambetta always harps on this and has a wonderful article on this as well, is those... The skips, the A skips, B skips, all that stuff. The original mock sprint drills that everybody and their mother does as a warm-up. High knees, butt kicks. Yes. yes, all that stuff. Those were originally designed not as form drills, but as specific strength drills to give you either the mobility, the reactivity, or to work on applying force into the ground in the in the right way to develop that capacity to then use in running they aren't to improve your running mechanics they aren't to like whatever they're specific strength drills running mechanics improve because strength mobility stability improves i think we gotta remember like it it, there's this intermediate bridge that's this indirect core you know don't mistake causation for correlation, right? There's this, it's an intermediate path. Yes, exactly. So now I want you to think about, okay, as Sarity said at the beginning, one third of your training time, blah, blah, blah. Now think about these drills that you add in, right? You start to fill that gap. You start to see, oh, this is a lot more of our training than we normally do. And what I would suggest then is if you consider and you change your mind from, oh, these are warm-up drills, and instead seeing this is an opportunity to create some of this specific strength and mobility, that shifts things a little bit. Because then your warm-up, like in other sports often, um, becomes part of the training stimulus, right? 
What are you trying to do? What are you trying to do? And I would also argue your cool down does as well. You know, you talked about John Cook and Shalane Flanagan. I remember um, being at a workout, helping out the late David Torrance, who was also cook, coached by Cook. When he came and visited Houston, we went down. I took him to the track. And what was fascinating is the drills that he did after the workout, almost immediately after. And he went from, again, I forget the exact workout, running quick 300s on the track to then through a very variety of these kind of what I'd call mobility and strength drills right after in a fatigued state. Why? Because he wanted to get used to like putting his body through these various strength requirements in a fatigued, non-fresh state as a stimulus for adaptation so that he could, again, develop some of this strength endurance that we're talking about. And a great opportunity to recruit motor units, right? Because all those high threshold ones are exhausted. Just like the same argument happens for running super long, right? Like, you know, like I know you're an advocate of it and other runner, people are like, oh, yeah, the long run gives you this motor unit recruitment opportunity at the very end when you've exhausted all the high threshold fibers, right? Same principle here. And I think this is where we have to conceptualize what we're doing a little bit more with a little bit more sophistication than this kind of blunt tool of get your miles in, right? And it's very easy to fall under that spell because tracking mileage now is super, super simple. I mean, your, your watch does it all for you. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. But I think when we think about what's the problem we're trying to solve is as endurance runners, we are trying to express strength and power for a given period of time. And we get so caught up in fueling that expression and making sure the fueling mechanism is, you know, uh, at high efficacy that we forget to work on the strength and power capacity and to develop it. And if we look at like, say, John McDonald's Arkansas runners, right, who did strength training sessions, then went for a run, or you look at Bowerman who like Prefontaine and all those U of O runners would lift in the morning three days a week before they would go do their quote-unquote layered style um, fartlek, as Dillinger would call it, which was basically six miles steady. So go lift and do six miles steady. And recently in the clubhouse, um, you know, there was a good dialogue going on about uh, with high school coaches about how to get athletes to run kind of their quote-unquote sub-threshold or threshold pace without overrunning and running it too fast. And I said, have them just do their strength training right before it. Because if you have a high schooler do their strength training in like circuit style, and then you say, okay, now we're going to go run these threshold 800s or threshold Ks or what have you, they're going to be a little bit acutely fatigued, but not, you know, uh, centrally fatigued. So they can still do the running. But that a little bit of fatigue you already inject with the circuit before you have them go on the track or the park to run their threshold uh, reps is going to make it so that, yeah, they're not going to want to overrun it at all. Because the whole point of the threshold rep is to have this balance of raising the physiological ceiling of dealing with lactate in a very dynamic way, but also to expressing just enough power, just enough strength to create just enough signaling. It's Goylock phenomena, so they don't overdo it. But again, high school kids typically are in hyperdrive for everything, right? Hypersexed, hyper, you know, hungry hyper machismo, hyper status driven. It's just hyper, hyper, hyper. Well, let's mute that hyper activity with a little bit of work before that's going to help to impact in a positive way versus, um, uh, you know, impact in a negative way. And we conceptualize circuit training just as we conceptualize dynamic warm-up drills as actually strengthening and activity um, modalities versus kind of this quote-unquote just general warm-up modality makes perfect sense. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's it's just a subtle switch of the framing, right? And if if you switch that framing up, then it allows you, it almost frees you up from the kind of standardized training 
modalities that we kind of get locked into, which is like, oh, do this threshold workout, do this VO2 max workout, do this like mile pace workout, blah, 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 blah. I mean, um, one of my favorite Canova workouts is the, basically the circuits on the track, which, you know, were Russian circuits or, you know, Peter Ko and Sepko did, which is in the early parts of the fundamental period, he has his, you know, marathoners do a lap, you know, at like for them, marathon pace, and then do some strengthening activity where it's like, you know, uh, scissor jumps or tuck jumps or med ball um, slams or push-ups or what have you for a period of time, you know, 60 seconds. All right, go do another lap, come back 60 seconds, do that, go do another lap, right? And this is a great integration of all those things concurrently because remember, what we're getting at is strength is contextual, right? Strength is, we got to understand that. So we have to apply strength in the context that we as the skill-specific athlete are going to use that strength. So I'm the first one to advocate for, yeah, there's a time and place for the heavy lifts, you know, low reps, high recruitment activity. But also let's not forget, that's not the main portion of your training diet in the non-running activity. It needs to be a little bit more contextual. So that's why these circuits are great for that because it gives the context where you get the neurological stimulus coupled with the physiological stimulus that's very close to the skill-specific activity, which is running fast for a duration of time. Yeah, you know, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with uh, Dan John when we were talking about strength training for female distance runners and what he would do. And he said, pretty simple. I'd take everything I need and put it right next to the track. <laughs> yes. And the reason for that is, is Dan, who's a brilliant strength coach, loves lifting heavy objects, all that stuff. But he understood, he understands like a, um, oftentimes, especially high school, like high school femaleers wouldn't feel comfortable in the weight room. So you're not going to get as much, done or is high quality work when you're putting people in an uncomfortable place um and two is put them in a place where they feel at home which is the track add some other strength components some kettlebells whatever you want to do some farmer walks where you're carrying some heavy stuff and you know walking essentially um other you know, strength components in between doing something that they are comfortable doing, which is running. And it's, it's the old, just as you said, the Canova, the Russian circuits, the run a lap, do something, the run a lap, do something. Or in, you know, when I was training with Alan um, Webb and Rasco, he'd call these Russian circuits as well, where we'd, we'd run a hundred meters and then do you know, squat jumps or whatever have you, then do another hard stride back and then do some other sort of exercise, general strength exercise. And it's very, very simple, but it allows you to integrate it into the running as well, where you can get some of this bang for your buck and train these capacities where we, in a, in a way that people feel comfortable doing because they're used to, you know, being on the track or running up a hill or whatever have you. And the way I like to think about this, Steve, is actually uh, gleaming from Bondarchuk and his um, classification and identification of different exercises, right? So his, and it's, it's very succinct and very simple, right? He has four different classifications of exercises. You have the competitive exercise, you have specific developmental exercises, specific preparation or preparatory exercises, and then general preparation or preparatory exercises. So what's the difference? Well, the competitive exercise and the specific development exercise, they align with the same neurological and physiological requirements of the sport-specific skill or activity you're training the athlete for. Then when you get to the specific preparatory exercise, that kind of maybe not has the same neurological requirement that goes out the window, but there's an essentially a very similar physiological component to 
that athlete's activity. And then we go to general prep exercises, more just general, there's kind of that neurological element there, but it's about, it goes about it in a roundabout way. So when we're thinking about circuits and we're thinking about training, well, obviously the competitive exercise would be like Sarity advocated for running at high velocities of your goal pace, or as Bowerman called it, for a specific period of time, right? That's as specific as you can get. And then the developmental one might be exactly that, like doing the supra velocity. So running a little faster for a little shorter or running a little slower for a little longer. It's kind of in the same ballpark neurologically, but it's also physiologically as well in the same ballpark and they're coupled. Then the preparatory exercises might be doing strength, push-ups, jumping jacks, jump squats, things that neurologically might not be the same, but physiologically have a very similar dynamic. So when we think about lactate dynamics and all those things that are going on, you can stimulate that. Boo Schnextar is very famous for saying, oh yeah, we can you know, stimulate lactate. And his quote-unquote recovery days for sprinters or jumpers are essentially circuits that stimulate lactate dynamic in a positive way that get the adaptation you want without just doing a slow aerobic jog. And this quick tangent reminds me when I was coaching uh, at Portland State University with Ronnie Harrison, who's now at, I believe, Cal. The first week, all the sprinters would do and jumpers would do in the first week of fall training, week one, is the warm-up. That's it. Because their warm-up, as you said, Steve, piggybacking on what you is was a strength activity <laughs> and they would be sore and tired. And that warm-up, you know, was something where it's like this, he's setting the foundation, the baseline expectation of you're going to be this strong, this stable to be able to do this and then go sprint at a high level and then go do your specific training. So we got to remember like the point of the dynamic warm-up versus that passive stretching and warm-up is not only neurological, but also physiological. So back on track, then the general prep exercises are things that are kind of like your bread and butter, like heavy squats, uh, you know, heavy overhead press, um, things that are just generally healthy, you know, Turkish get-ups, what have you. And so when you think about it, what you always want to do is with that Bonnerchuk um, classification system is typically the specific and the competitive exercise should be done in the more fresher state unless you're trying to get some recruitments in a more fatigue state. And then from there, you kind of descend down, right? So if we're doing circuits with, um, you know, 200s or 400s running on the track, what I would do is I would do a circuit where, you know, we might do something like this. We start with the competitive exercise, so 400 at your 5K pace. And then maybe um, actually do another 400 at a float, like a 10K pace, right? So get some very specific lactate dynamics. So do 800, then stop. And now you're going to do some um, uh, tuck jumps, right, or jumping jacks, which, again, continues to work the physiology, but now not the neurology in the same way because you're not doing the run pattern. And then right after that, I might have them just do slow and steady push-ups with a lot of recovery where we're just really focusing on keeping that plank, having good technique, and allows that physiology to kind of subside and them to catch their breath before we go out and just do another round of those four exercises. So that would be kind of a direct application of applying this classification, Bonner check style, to a circuit session on the track. I love it. That's interesting. So I want to I want I want to talk about one thing that you mentioned in there specifically. Okay. And that was uh I believe it was Boo talking about the lactate, right? So I think this is one of the most underrated aspects of incorporating whether circuits or hill circuits or strength training within running is that often when it comes to, let's say, a high intensity interval training, the, the classic linear thing is like we have to be a little bit afraid of the lactate of doing this too much because I'm paraphrasing here, but we'll essentially create, make it where our anaerobic enzymes are working too much, which 
kind of decrease our aerobic enzymes and, and paraphrasing there. Okay. So the anaerobic hurting the aerobic. Okay. There's a little bit of truth to that. If we shift the balance too much and we do too much high intensity stuff with not enough aerobic stuff, we start to erode our capacities because our body's sitting there being like, oh, like we need to prepare for this high intensity stuff. Like let's shift our emphasis over here. But the brilliance of hills, circuits, strength circuits, combining that with running is it is what I would call non-specific lactate production, which means you are often producing the lactate and fibers, muscle fibers, muscles, etc., areas that aren't your easily recruited, like first wave of recruitment for running, which means you get this non-specific lactate production, which then goes into the bloodstream, and then you are training the other fibers to be able to take that up and be like, oh, let's utilize this stuff. Let's train to utilize this stuff. So you don't get the de- to the like negative regard or the negative aspect of doing a lot of high acidosis work because it's not in the muscle fibers, et cetera, that are generally used for running fast or whatever have you. This is why the old adage of the old school athletes is, what is hill training? Well, hill training is speed work in disguise, <laughs> yes. right? Uh-huh. The reason they said that is pretty simple. is because it is, but it allows you to get that work in without some of the you know, potential downfalls. So this non-specific lactate work and done in terms of, of circuits, et cetera, allows you to deal with higher levels of lactate without demand, damaging or degrading that aerobic capacity, which I think is one of the biggest bang for your bucks. And also why Lydiard probably did his circuits, you know, in, in the manner that he did, or Sarity did his, you know, uh, his, um, his circuits on the sand dunes, you know, high intensity in the manner that he did, which told them that Herb Elliott was ready to go, ready to set the, you know, Olympic record. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Steve, because, yeah, that it's another subtle way to improve the body's relationship to lactate. Because as we know, you can recycle it in the liver and kidneys and reuse it as fuel. Or it gets offloaded somewhere else and just is stored there so it doesn't take up and create excessive acidification because, again, lactate is a product, a proxy for those positive H ions, and you can offload it and create this improved mitochondria respiration in other muscle delis. So you can offload it there and those muscle bellies and tissues can gobble up and eat essentially that positive H ion and that lactate. So if we think about it like this, it makes perfect sense in terms of also now add in the fatty acid utilization and fatty acid capacity enhancement that these short intense intervals have demonstrated to of work bouts have demonstrated to improve this is why you'll see like people like oh hit training it burns fat well this is essentially what it is right this is a very methodical these circuits of strength and power very methodical short spurts or bouts of hit intervals so to speak that then up allows fatty acids to be upregulated and used now as a fueling source because we can use fatty we can improve this either with this short interval type methodology or long and steady running right we have the whole spectrum now so even on your quote unquote recovery day or even on your non specific run day if you package this correctly you can maintain that physiological training we so desire as endurance athletes through non or traditional modalities it's brilliant yeah no it's 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 again (laughs) it's another way to um to get at something without kind of the the negative regards of it and this is also i would argue this is often why athletes run you know you see this all the time in high school athletes run really well early on 
sometimes faster than they would expect to off of an aerobic phase and a hill phase. Yes. Right? I, I actually had this happen to me when I was coaching community college. We did that. And like my teams ran lights out early season when we were doing kind of our hills and Sarah's phase. Right. And then we got away from it. And it's like we started doing more quote unquote run traditional only work. And they just kind of like plateaued. They didn't really get better. They didn't really get worse. But it, we just kind of were stuck. Yeah. It, exactly. It's just that you just get stuck. <laughs> and I, I, I think that's why, you know, you know, we've talked strength training a lot, but even just hills in general, like this is and using a variety of hills, because often we talk about hills and we're just like, oh, go use a hill. But, you know, it's not that it's like just as literary did, you can sprint up hills, you can bound up hills, you can spring up hills, you can go up a step like like um, like Canova does a very steep hill. His hill sprints are often up very steep hills. You can do it up a shallow hill, right? Whatever you can, do you can be, like think about stairs. You be, You're getting high velocity contacts going upstairs. You can be like Steve Scott, who often did you know, 20, 30, 40 by 100 meter hills. <laughs> um, think about what that means in terms of strength and uh, strength, power, and endurance. And, you know, the interesting thing, I mean, this just came to my mind, but Scott, Steve Scott was is interesting because these hills, if you look at his training, it is year round. And Steve Scott was notorious for being near peak shape year round and racing all the freaking time. It's and the I same think, with Ron Warhurst, right? Nick Willis, yep. Hop Kessler, hills year round. Hills it's part of the warm up, right? It's part of what they, it's just part of what they do. Yes. And a very varying lengths here. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think we've kind of come full circle on this, this podcast is like, well, Sarity says a third of training and non-running aspects. If we include in that, things that are designed to improve strength, speed, mobility, like elasticity, power, et cetera, then it's pretty easy to understand how we can get close to or exceed that number. Yeah. And when you look back at history at what we call this quote unquote ancillary work or non-running work, it is sprinkled throughout a lot of the most dominant runners um, during any era, whether it's was formally called out as that or informally. And I think sometimes we are poor for thinking there's only one way to skin a cat and you got to just do the most specific thing. And the, the only way to get better at running is running. That's a half truth. Unfortunately, it's a key part of getting better at running without a doubt. But as that, you know, scientific study showed, even replacing a third of your training time with non-running power speed activities intelligently will make you a better runner. Because at the end of the day, what we want is to run faster with less, um, you know, energy expenditure, running economy. And this is what super shoes are showing is so important because it's that acidification of the muscles of the body, which leads to overtraining, injury, all these other like fatigue elements, right? And that's really what we're doing when we're having recovery periods, whether they're short periods within a workout, long periods between workouts. They're saying how much acid or acidification do we inject in the system? And how long do we have to wait for everything to essentially be cleaned up? And if you say do circuits or go on like shorter interval horizons, the less acid you have in the body, the more quickly you can bounce back and do something else, right? And so you can increase that frequency of training without the breakdown associated with it. So it's just understanding like when we look at things, if we take a broader lens and we can have a better interpretation about what's really happening on a variety of different levels, it makes sense why these things are really important, even though we can't anchor it and track it as miles ran per day or week. 
Yeah, you know, and the the thing I'd I'd say there that kind of summarizes this up is what you're really looking for is again, this is a heuristic, but that heuristic forces you out of the comfort zone and to get a little creative with your training. And it's that creativity that that allows us to escape our kind of bounded reality, which is like bound into these metrics that we can measure and track and blah, 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 and get us to a, a place where we can do things like Nova circuits, Lydiard circuits, you know, Serity Hill, you know, sand dune running, whatever it is, whatever your thing is, because we know that it's going to lead to improvement in our runners, even if it doesn't give us a nice round mileage number or nice quantified metric to put in our log and feel good about. Yeah. And just figuring out where to place it in kind of your training menu or your training um, uh, pattern. Right. So for me, I have a session that I call like skills and drills, or we also called it like athletique, being more athletic using the French word here. And it's always kind of a quote unquote recovery modality, like, you know, boo would uh, place. So it's the day after a workout or the day after, um, you know, a long run or something. And it's a, a ramp up of dynamic drills and contacts. We use the quote unquote agility ladder. Everyone hates because again, it's just, it's about different planes of movement. It's about different relationships of contacting the ground. And as they warm up, the activities go from simple things like the quote unquote ladder drills to, you know, jumping or jump roping, skipping to then like, you know, uh, legitimate plyos like depth jumps with a reaction, higher med ball, uh, intensity med ball circuits, et cetera. But the whole activity lasts maybe 20, 30 minutes. And then we go for the run. Then we go for the recovery run. Then we go for the aerobic canyon shuffle shakeout run, right? And so we got the stimulus, we got the exposure, we got the recruitment, but then we also now are mopping up with the aerobic run, the tonic, so we don't create this excessive um, delay in recovery or acidification. And yeah, are we going to such a level of intensity that we're tearing muscle fibers? No, that we're trying not to create that. What we're trying to create is a stimulus, a positive thing that will enhance and uh, the recovery and act as a springboard neurologically and physiologically so the athletes feel better and can recover with a little bit um, quicker uh, time horizons and then yeah i mean it's really that's a really good way to use it yeah exactly i mean i i think i think that is the the kind of key is figuring out where it fits in your spot you know and it's whether you want to use it in that way. Often what we would do with the college kids is, or what I do when I was coaching college, is I would reserve a specific day for uh, like hill sprints or dynamics, you know, uh, especially early on in the season. And then what we would do as well is often have secondary strength in our afternoons after hard workout days and we do it in the afternoons because I wanted to give them time to recover but then we could also kind of load them up in a different way um, so that we could kind of stack the stimulus so that if they were a little sore or tired like it was to be expected because the next day we were just jogging around really slowly right (laughs) yeah I mean and again it's like defining what a hard day is, define what an easy day is, right? That's a classic example. Hard day is really hard because you're injecting a lot of stimuli into their, their training uh, menu. But then the following day, the Kenyan shuffle inverse super easy. My, my progression with like the hard day was hard the day before. And then we kind of had this quasi hard, but not, I mean, it was more meant to be like a wake up neurological wake up more than anything so we're trying to make it hard and how many you know depth jumps are we talking about we're talking about like two to three sets of three right nine nine plyos right off the ground like not anything crazy in terms of volume or robustness but just enough of a sprinkle of a spice just to kind of wake us up right um and even later on in alan webb's career 
he made a comment to me like kind of the last couple of years. He goes, um, you know, I just, I know I feel really good when I do these trails. I know I feel, and then we're talking little baby hurdles, plyos, skips, these things versus some of his ladder coaches de-emphasized that and really didn't put a whole lot of stock in it versus that's how he became who he became. It was an integral part of his development. And when he, even he got away from it, he just lost, he said, I lost that pop. I lost that ability just to ch- change gears. And it's very interesting thinking of that now and now knowing what we know, you and I, Steve, throughout studying history and getting a little bit better at all this stuff of how integral and important that was. And then seeing this decline in such a marvelous performer and runner and saying, well, it was a myriad of factors, but how that deletion of that type of regular work kind of also influenced and made him so he became more human. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And, you know, it's, you know, I mentioned hill sprints often in the beginning of the season. I'll use those the day before workouts to get that priming of the, the pump, mm-hmm. you know. So I think it comes back to, again, sometimes it's it's knowing what you're trying to do and knowing what makes your athlete, that particular athlete, feel better or feel worse. And this is where I think it comes to the individualization, too, is like often doing even power or reactive work works really well for fast twitch oriented athletes to get them primed and legs feeling good. Meanwhile, for someone super slow twitch, like can lead them to feel a little fatigued or worn out because they're not used to having that high neural demand. A hundred percent. I mean, I see this all the time, like say with my wife, she's been doing a, uh, a little kind of like neural circuit for one of her workouts here in her preparation phase. And it's really simple. We go to the track, we do kind of like progressive cut down 200s. And then we'll go and do some seven seconds, supercharged, what we call turbo stairs, where it's just seven seconds going up the stairs, you know, as much power and quickness as we, as she can muster. And then she'll do about six of those. And then she'll do six uh, hill repeats, 20 second hill repeats, a little longer, kind of in between and it's not a lot of volume and the goal is always to like finish up with like some you know strides on the grass but rarely does she get to the point where she feels like she has the energy to do the strides on the grass <laughs> like that's the point of like we know she's adapting but her sensitivity to it being more of a uh, long distance oriented runner who gets a lot of um, return or feels a lot better after a long run than deflated doing that high neural work leaves her hyper deflated and we couple it actually with her um, weekly kettlebell strength training session. So she does this specific run stuff and then goes to a kettlebell session for 45 minutes. And so it's this big stacking of these neural demands on top of each other, one in a specific way, one in kind of more of a general way. But what's interesting is we did this for about three weeks and then we um, took a kind of a down week where we didn't do that type of work at all. And instead, on that day, we did the classic, um, you know, Bowerman 600 meter, 400 meter, 300 meter, 200 meter, 100 meter times two. And we hadn't done any of that for months. Like it was the first session. And she was popping off times and able to run these, you know, that a winner here in Oregon you know, without, uh, you know, one rep with super shoes, one rep without the previous one without super shoes, just that speed. She's never first been able to do that workout in ever before. Like for her, I'd say about several seconds faster in non super shoes than her first go at that workout ever in her career. And this summer was like 30, you know, uh, eight years old, right. It's like, who's now coming back to that on the track and like get, being exposed to that neural demand, running maybe what prior 10 years, five years before would take three or four of those types of sessions to get to. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's, in- that, that is interesting. But at least, but, but it, but those days have left her neurally shot. She's literally been just on the couch. Like I'm not, I'm not tired, but I'm exhausted. <laughs> like I know what you mean. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, it's that nervous system fatigue that often feels a little bit different and perplexing. Um, yeah, it's like groggy. Like she's just like, I just yeah. feel real groggy, like just real fuzzy, like you know, but not physically tired. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of wild. Yeah. All right, so. I think that's a great place to wrap this one up because it tells us the individual nature and individual response. And what you're trying to do when you apply this non-running stuff is to figure out what you need with that fleet you have in front of you for this training stimulus or adaptation you're looking for. And our whole point of this podcast episode is to get you away from the kind of cookie cutter approach and start asking you know, what are these training modalities, these tools in my toolbox that I'm using? What are they for? And how can I maybe, you know, get a little creative and make them have a little bigger bang for their buck or institute some other modalities that may give me something, you know, related to running intervals on the track or related to sprinting, but in a way that, you know, maybe is a little safer, maybe gives me some extra benefits or um, other things like that. And this non-specific, non-running aspects are are one way to do that. And it doesn't need to be super complex or super crazy drills. Like probably the best resources I'd say, if you want to look a little bit more into this, are Dan John's books, because he does a really good job of just laying out basic movement patterns and the import of those. And also Vern Gambetta's athletic development book is a good staple where Vern just kind of goes through and says, hey, here's just some basic ancillary, quote unquote, as we'll call non-running activities or exercises you can employ that can have a really high impact in any sport, really, because the book was written for general sport development. So start there with those and just two or three days or times a week is enough and a you'll see a lot to actually create that improvement you want in the athlete. Exactly. All right. Until next time, everybody, check out the Running Scholar Program. See what you're missing out in the clubhouse in our Enlightenment Project. And check uh, yeah, it out. If you're not a scholar, you can at me and Steve on Twitter with books you recommend and think are really important for different running coaches at different stages to read. Like, you know, the concept is, Essentially, what we're trying to figure out is the book a foundational book, like a must read in the beginning, or is it an intermediate book, kind of like, you know, advancing concepts, or is it an advanced book that's really specific and a little bit more um, complex, but still digestible for someone who's a little further experienced and along on the journey? And then, two, organizationally, that's the key is like, where, what organizational bucket would you put it in? Like, and we have three different categories there. Organizational is just nuts and bolts, right? Uh, physical and then interpersonal, which is kind of how the art of coaching and also psychology of it. So if you have ideas or you have books or you have materials, it can be articles, it can be podcasts, it can be anything. We just usually want to kind of create this curation with the alignment project where you could click on it, get a list, figure out, hey, I haven't seen that or that looks interesting. I could get that. And we're going to make it free and accessible to everyone whether you're a member or not, uh, because we think it's really important. But we really want a lot of contribution on this because Steve and I don't have the hubris to think we can, one, find all the resources, decide upon them, nor have the authority to make those decisions. So we're not going it alone. We're doing it as a community. And I think that's what's going to make the Alignment Project so valuable for so many coaches now and in years to come.